This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. It is only when we are truly alone, without someone else to lean on, left with our own inner solitude, that we can undergo a process of change. The introspection that is needed to bring out the light that has dwindled down to ash and reignite the fire of our being. So let the darkness shape you. Let it reform you. Let it cradle you and birth you into a new life. Let the spark flame again and the darkness is where you will find it. L.J. Veneer Welcome to Liturgy of the Forsaken. This is a very special episode of the CXMH podcast. I'm Steve Austin, and I'm so glad that you are here. In this episode, you are going to hear from some of our favorite people from around the country. This is a very special podcast. If you normally listen at the gym or in your car, on your way to or from work, I would challenge you to do something different this time. To get alone, to sit in a quiet place by yourself or maybe with someone you love who gets it, and turn the lights off. Maybe you light a candle. Maybe you light a fragrant candle. Liturgy is all about igniting the senses. So you'll hear stories that will prick your heart. It would be a great sensory experience to light a candle or maybe have communion on your own as you take part in this experience with us. Whatever you do, take good care of yourself as you listen to these confessions and laments and questions and struggles. You are safe here. We want you to know in the tension of Good Friday that your questions and your doubts and your uncertainty matter just as much as your faith and that we are there with you and so is God right in the midst of the darkness. Welcome to Liturgy of the Forsaken. We don't talk about this on Good Friday. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We talk about the supper in still and gentle tones, the last message of a dying man, shared and sung around the table in time-honored tradition. Love and service, compassion and kindness, the you don't understand, but you will. He loved his own given in the world, now loved them to the last. Bread and wine and a cup we couldn't share, a commandment to love one another, to do this and remember. 
We talk about the betrayal, love carried and grown over months, years, thrown away by those who swore they'd die with him. Over dinner, he said, what you're going to do, do quickly. And there were pieces of silver, and we wonder what would be our price. The kiss by torchlight, the violence in the garden, frightened, fleeing disciples. We talk about the denial, the most passionate, most ardent, first to say, I'd go to the grave, became first to say, I never knew. Huddled around a charcoal fire, warming against the cold that might have been inside, trying to get a little closer to the one he'd deserted. The rooster's crow, the bitter weeping, the curses called down. We talk about the pain. We know it was excruciating. Beaten beyond recognition, Hard and sharp thorns, piercing skin, blood matted and crusted in hair, a back with flesh hanging off in raw strips, shredded and pressed up against splintering wood, the crushing weight of asphyxiation, the tearing cruelty of pushing up on nail-pierced appendages for one more breath. But we don't talk about this. We don't talk about how he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. We don't talk about what that means, the weight of pain and trading perfection to be all horror and hatred and massive sin. Let it sink in, wash over and wreck you. It never ceases wrecking me. He knew no sin. This Christ who came, who changed things, who embraced and accepted, who was perfection itself. He forgave relentlessly, loved furiously, fought passionately for a reconciled family. Kindness and compassion and unfailing rightness He never knew sin. He became sin on our behalf. This Christ tasted not just pain of torture and grief of betrayal for us. It wasn't just substitution, just standing in the gap, but becoming the gap, becoming the separation between us. Everything we've ever done wrong, everything wrong ever done to us. Both are wrapped up in this becoming that separated him from his father. He became every failure and ugly thought and unkind word, every malicious intent of my heart, every slanderous word spoken, every assault, every horror, every crime against humanity, every theft of innocence, every cruel turning away, and every twisted injustice. 
This is the horrifying and humbling weight that brings tears to my eyes and weakness to my knees. Perfection became sin. What mystery is this? What weight of tragedy? What holy ground we're on? Great love will endure pain, but be made into everything it vehemently opposes? And this is how the new making comes, the world reconciling and turning back over. This is sickness and shatteredness slowly being made right because he already became it. This is kingdom come on earth as in heaven, and I don't have to be afraid to draw close anymore. And this is what we should talk about on Good Friday amidst the violence and betrayal and still moments at the supper. This is the good of the gospel, the good of this dark Friday none of us could see. Last Thanksgiving, Lindsay was reading through the Psalms every morning. And one morning I went out on the porch to see her after her devotion time. And she said, Give thanks to the Lord who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. His love endures forever. (laughs) I said, What? What the heck are you talking about? Psalm 136, 1 through 12 is the Thanksgiving Psalm. Multiple Praise and worship songs have been written from just that one portion of Scripture. And so we sat down and we talked about the psalm in context, how God had delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery, and this being a psalm of praise and thanksgiving for God's children. But when you sit down and read it today out of context, out of cultural Context. It reads like we're praising a God who murdered babies. And I thought about a conversation with one of my friends just the other day, and she said, Steve Austin, how do you know that you trust God? Well, crap. That's a loaded question. And this friend of mine has been through hell. She has been through her own personal hell on earth. She has experienced some tragedies that would, I think, leave the strongest person in a crumpled pile of confusion. But this friend of mine still believes in God wholeheartedly. I don't think she questions the tenets of our faith, and she's devoted to following Christ. But she can't say... She trusts God. So she said, trust him to do what? Trust God to what end? We can still trust God and babies die. So this friend of mine has faith that isn't simple. And mine isn't either. If you've lived very long, yours probably isn't either. And at some point, Sunday school answers just don't cut it anymore. And so I talked with my friend about the use of Christianese and the way that we've all been guilty of trying to say something comforting when a friend is going through a hard time. But God is in control 
may not be the most appropriate response at certain times. And makes me think back on being raised to quote Romans. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. It may be true, and it may be the inspired, infallible Word of God. But even if that is true, when someone is walking through hell, trouble, despair, it may not be exactly what somebody needs to hear. So Lindsay and I were sitting on the back porch that Thanksgiving, and she said, I'm not sure that I can say God took us to Alaska two years ago, dropped us 4,000 miles from home, and allowed us just enough time to fall in love with the community before everything fell apart and you lost your job. His love endures forever. (laughs) And I agree. That job was going to be the job of a lifetime, the trip of a lifetime, the move of a lifetime. We thought, this is it. This is our chance The chips have finally fallen in our favor, and everything is going to work out just right. And three days into starting that job, after selling everything we owned and moving two tiny little children 4,000 miles from home, three days into starting that job, it fell through. I don't always understand God's ways. But there's a favorite blogger of mine, Carlos Whitaker, who says that one day the suck will be less. So where I sit today on this Good Friday, I can't honestly say that I believe God will work all things for our good and for His glory. But I trust that one day, One day when we leave these bodies that are prone to leukemia and Parkinson's and dementia and depression and anxiety and bipolar, I believe that God will meet us in heaven and either explain it all away or God's reasoning won't matter as much. I think that one day after a heartbreak we may actually look back and say, look what the Lord has done. Look what God has done. It doesn't mean it's any easier today. It doesn't mean that when you've just practiced self-harm that you feel the presence of God. It doesn't mean that you're going to take a magic Jesus pill as my friend JJ says, and suddenly everything's going to be okay. No. But I think one day we might maybe be amazed at the blessing that God has brought about through our suffering. And in the midst of the mess, that doesn't comfort me, but I think about the life of Jesus. God made flesh dwelt among us and lived a fully human experience and was fully faithful. He lived on this earth for three decades and then during his final days in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he felt like he was being pressed from an olive into oil, even Jesus said, Hey, Pops, if there is any other way 
let's just high five and call this good because what I am experiencing and what I am about to do just plain sucks. Sometimes trusting God feels like it sucks. It's not triumphant. It's not glorious. And sometimes we don't even want to do it. Sometimes trusting God is this stubbornness that cries in the middle of the night, but it attaches firmly to my faith. And sometimes trusting God isn't a praise song with the full band on a Sunday morning, but it's this stick to itness that says, I know there is something deeper than my pain. And I believe there is a power higher than anything I can rationalize. So I will not quit tonight. I'll give this another shot tomorrow. So how do I know I trust God? Because I go to bed after an especially difficult day or week or month or life. I go to bed and I'm willing to wake up in the morning and do it all over again. It wasn't always the case for me. There were two years when I prayed to die often. There were multiple times when I floored the car on the interstate and I revved the engine and I was ready to smash my vehicle into the overpass in front of me. I've talked about it. I've written about it, how I spent time in ICU and on the psych ward because hard days nearly got the best of me. But I am being renewed day by day. My soul is being saved continually. And I know I trust God because when the shit hits the fan, I still find peace in God. Have you ever heard a song that pierced your heart like an arrow? A Thousand Years by Christina Perry does this for me. I don't know it from the Twilight movies. My girlfriend played it for me. She had been in London feeling lost and alone. She heard that song and felt like God was singing it to her. To hear God call her darling, telling her not to be afraid, assuring her of a love that lasted a thousand years, The song did that piercing thing, and she found herself walking on a London street with tears streaming down her face. Hymns can have this power, too. Have you ever sung a hymn to yourself to get by? If so, you and Jesus have something in common. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that this is the last thing Jesus says before he dies on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a line from Psalm 22. If you think of it as a kind of hymn, it makes so much sense that it comes to Jesus at this terrible moment. When your heart is as broken as it can be, there's something strangely comforting in hearing a song like this echo in the depths of your soul. It's like the song itself is your companion in the agony. It brings you deeper into the hurt, for sure, But sometimes that's what you need, not to escape the pain, but to go through it. What blows me away about this is that, of course, Jesus was God. If Jesus feels like he has lost God, he feels like he's lost part of himself. 
that's the worst kind of pain in my experience. When I've lost something so important to me that it feels like a part of me is missing or has been totaled. For Jesus being who he is means he is going to suffer. That's the hand he's been dealt. This is true for lots of us. Being honest about who we are means that we have a lot of shit to deal with. Shit from the world, shit inside our own heads, residual shit from the traumas we've experienced. This shit also makes us who we are. And I bet you know, like I do, the way you survive, the way you keep from losing yourself in the music of pain is this. You have to remember who you are. You know, Jesus up on that cross, he could blame someone. F you, Pilate, you opportunistic politician. F you, Caiaphas, you heartless priest. F you, Judas, pretending to be my friend. The problem with blaming someone else is that even if it's justified, it doesn't help. Blaming someone else focuses your attention outside of you. It dissipates your energy at a time when you need to be solidly inside yourself in order to make it through. In Psalm 22, the singer is in terrible pain but still hopes that God is there. You said you've loved me for a thousand years and I believed you. I want to believe you, but it's gotten so hard and I feel so alone. Where are you? Maybe for Jesus, telling God that he feels forsaken is a bit like reaching inside, searching for a touchstone. I need you right now, so show up. This kind of self-awareness takes courage. When you feel like your life is worthless, it takes guts to burrow inside yourself and find something of value. But it may be the most important thing you can do. Maybe it's a big step. I'm going to get honest about what happened. Or I'm going to show up for my kid. Maybe it's risky. I'm going to open my heart to someone else, to some kind of community. And maybe it's something small. I'm just going to name something, one thing that I love in myself. None of this is easy, and I don't mean to suggest that it is. All I'm saying is that when, when it gets hard, really hard, listen for the music, the words you need. Watch yourself stand alone and try to imagine that God is watching you too. Sing to yourself and try to hear God singing. I have loved you for a thousand years. I'll love you for a thousand more. Amen. So waiting is hard for my soul. 
I'm waiting on you to open my eyes to see things the way that you see this life seems just saying this is good for my soul I'm waiting on you to make sense of these misplaced pieces and long stalled dreams all this awaiting is hard for my soul I'm waiting on you to take this from me I thought you said that I'd find the strength you must be saying this is good for my soul So I trust in the promise that steadies my hope that you never forsake or leave me alone I trust in the promise for those in the fight the joy comes after the darkest of nights but mostly I trust cause I've been here before and you broke through Now 
Liturgy means work of the people. So are we talking about the work the forsaken do to find their way back? Or is it the work the people around them do to reach the forsaken? Maybe it's both. Suicide is brutal in a way that has nothing to do with the method of death. When a person dies this way, there is no decrescendo, no note to resolve the music of their lives. There's only a building intensity, a kind of frenetic energy pouring out from them. It's like they've been interrupted mid-sentence. They're still attending rehearsals, preparing tomato beds, making phone calls. The worlds are filled with their energy as they go about the nuances of the projects and relationships that mark all of our days. And then, all at once, they're just gone. The abrupt silence is staggering. It's been 16 months since my mother's suicide, and still, the sharp quiet that marks the spot where she should be takes my breath away. It's an ear-ringing, deafening silence, and it is, as I said, brutal. For me, months three and four into the silence were the hardest. That's the time when you're supposed to be okay, but you aren't. I'd gone back to work and mostly back into my routines, but I was nowhere close to being back to normal. Normal really doesn't exist anymore. You can never be who you were before that silence began. But I didn't know how to navigate the terrain of my new life, the life I now lived without my mom, either. I was awkward, uncertain, and angry. I spent a lot of time alone. But there were a couple of friends who just wouldn't let me fall off their radar. About this time, my friend Lindsay invited me to meet at the park with our children. I'm not great company, I warned her. I don't need you to be anything in particular, she said. I'll just be glad to see you. So we met at a playground one afternoon. I remember sitting on a bench, clutching my coffee, staring blankly while my kids played in the sandbox. Lindsay and I talked some, but it was mostly quiet. At one point, I remember noticing that she wasn't fidgeting. She wasn't uncomfortable if I mentioned my mom. She really did seem to be glad to see me. It dawned on me how brave she was to do this, to be willing to spend time with her awkward, tense friend, to just sit here beside me, not offering scripture or trying to cheer me up. She was doing the work of the people, her own liturgy. She was reaching her hand out towards me. And by showing up, not hiding, not pretending to be okay, I was grasping for her. Since my mother's death, I've never regained my footing with God. I'm sure I will in time, but I'm not there yet. I still enjoy the liturgy, though. Its rhythm and predictable, predictability soothe me. Sometimes I pray to Mary, not because I think God isn't listening or doesn't care, but because I know Mary understands grief. She knows the brutal silence of a life that ended mid-sentence. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. I'm not Catholic. And yet, this prayer is all I've got right now. Liturgy is the work of the people, and I'm doing what I can. Lindsay's hand towards me, my hand towards Mary. It all matters. It all helps. Each grasp leads us closer to one another and closer to home. Because the forsaken were never intended to stay that way. I'm coming to you from an airport of all places, surrounded by thousands of stories. Every human being is a story. And if you take the moment and just even look in the faces, you can see pressure and joy and sorrow and loss. People going from one spot to another, trying to get uh, to a place that matters to them, maybe. But here, in this bustling community, we're surrounded by people who are alone, 
We're in a time of Lent, a time that we slow down enough to take a look at our suffering. Um, just 15 minutes ago, I got this note from a friend of mine, and she writes, I'm tired. I don't want any more pain and suffering. I want one of those stupid transformations. Don't want God to respect me. Just want him to do some great, awesome miracle. I don't want God to give the people around me a choice. I just want some relief from pain. I sat here this morning asking God to show me that he's here, but nothing seems to happen and I'm rambling to you because I'm so freaking tired and now I'm going to go by sheer will, get ready and go to breakfast with some folks. I slept for five hours straight last night and I feel like hell this morning. All the things that you're told to do to feel better and nothing I do seemingly makes any difference. Does anyone even really care? There you go, writing in the middle of my poop and cleaning it up just enough so that you don't know how I really feel. Are you still my friend? You know, a lot of us have been there, maybe for a long period of time, where all we feel is our pain and we feel our aloneness. I think that there's no one who understands that better than Jesus, and we forget about that. And there is this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is so profoundly being dismantled at a deep level that he starts to sweat blood. And a lot of people think that it's because he fears the pain and the torment that he's about to face in the crucifixion. But I think it goes way deeper than that. We're talking about Jesus, the incarnation of a part of a family, a community with a father. And this Jesus prior to the incarnation never knew a moment of existence as the creator where he didn't sense the love and affection of the Spirit and the Father. And now he's going to enter into our great sadness, into our darkness. He's going to feel what it's like to be alone. Not that he is alone, because he never does believe that he's alone. Even in the upper room, he tells the disciples, you know, you're all going to run, and you're going to think that I'm alone, but I'm not alone because the Father is always with me. But now he's going to enter into our experience because he is going to become sin for us and all the brokenness of our lives, things that were perpetrated on us, things that we didn't choose, all of that is going to come right into his experience. For the first time, he is not going to sense the presence of the Father. For the first time, he won't know if that affection is relentless and surrounding him because he's going to enter into my cry. How many years did I spend not being able to hear the voice of God, not being able to sense the presence of God, not being able to know that I was loved without reason or condition? And now Jesus is going to enter into that deep darkness as us, and he's going to take all that down with him, and then he's going to rise to new life, but during the trauma of it, he's going to have to trust. And that is the biggest call to our hearts. Simplify it down to just this day's grace. And regardless of how we feel, agree with what we know. 
and what we see in the experience in the life of Jesus. You're not alone. You're made in the image of a God who's never been alone. Aloneness is not part of light and not part of the Imago Dei, the creation that you are created in. All this darkness we as human beings have brought to the table. And the truth is, we're not alone. We've never been alone. We will never be alone. We are embraced by this relentless affection, even in the midst of all our losses. As a man, there are many stigmas around mental health. My recent experience when I walked into the victim services office in my hometown looking for trauma counseling reaffirmed that in a big way. Can I help you? Yes, I'm looking for some help. I think you might have the wrong office. This is victim and trauma services, right? Um, yes. Okay, then I have the right place. We normally service people who have been abused or sexually assaulted. Yes, I would fit both those categories. Oh. Oh. Sorry. Please come in and have a seat. This is why many men will not tell anyone about what is happening to them. Or share the thoughts they have or explore if their internal climate is normal or not. But I want to encourage men to share their experiences. To share their thought life. Because one of two things will happen. Either you will find that what you face is normal, and that is comforting, or you will find out what you experience isn't normal, and then you can begin the journey towards becoming healthy. But if you silently struggle and try to survive the war that rages inside you on your own, you will find that eventually you will burn out. I'm a six foot three guy. I have a big beard, shaved head, I drive a big truck, and I hunt. I build homes for a living, I have tattoos, and for all intents and purposes, I'm somewhat intimidating, or at least that's what I've been told. I don't look like I struggle with PTSD, and I don't look like I suffer from abnormal levels of anxiety. I've spent my entire life crafting an image and a persona that acts as a shield. The truth is, I am a terrified person on the inside. I live a life that could be characterized as a civil war. I live in a state of hypervigilance. My brain is constantly telling me that everything is going wrong, that everyone is plotting against me, and that any moment, a person twice my size might burst into the room and throw me at the wall. And at any moment, that man twice my size might grab the people I care about most in the world and hurt them while I watch helplessly. At this point in my life, I know that this won't happen, or at least my rational, logical brain knows. But my emotional brain, my survival brain, is afraid for its life and the lives of everyone I care about. I wake every night from dreams that terrorize me. Dreams that at some point stop terrorizing me because I learn to become numb to the dreams of helplessness. Of watching the woman I love be hurt in the worst imaginable ways. Of my kids being stolen from me. Of the person who should have protected me as a boy be the person that is hunting me down. And I spend night after night on the run in a world that my subconscious is creating and changing. And I realize you can never truly be numb from these dreams. I spend my days watching for signs that my boss might want to fire me. 
and I worry that my coworkers are talking about me behind my back. I've gone from job to job because of my insecurities and my need to protect myself. I am in the process of losing my family. Because somewhere along the way, I picked up the belief that if I could control my world enough, I could rid myself of this never-ending fear. But the more I control, the further from the very thing I want, I become. And so, today I work hard to let go, to breathe, and to remind myself that it will all be okay no matter what happens. I choose to send my boss a note thanking him for the opportunity to work when my anxiety around work becomes too much for me to bear. I take a knee at work and I shed a tear when I feel my chest tighten to the point that I can't breathe. And then, I breathe. Every day is a challenge, but today I go to a support group on Monday nights and counseling every other Monday. I've been honest with my boss about my struggles and I will start getting trauma counseling when I am finished with the cognitive behavioral therapy. Today, I am okay with being weak. And I know that these are not normal experiences. That these things I face are not something I can just push through. That this belief, this thing that I learned to do as a young man to appease my abuser, does me a disservice every time I engage with it. When I try to push through, it puts me back in the position of being abused and pushes me further down the path away from recovery. Today, I give my anxiety room. I choose to honor it. And I choose to let the experiences come so that they can go. A Litany for Survival by Audre Lorde. For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone, For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going, in the hours between dawns looking inward and outward at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures like bread in our children's mouths so that their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. For those of us who are imprinted with fear like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk, for by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hope to silence us, for all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we are afraid we may never eat again. When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Psalm 126, 5. I watched the neighbor's house burn to the ground one morning when I was six. A small splatter of grease started the blaze that intended to destroy. That's how life works, I learned. 
By the time I was 10, my mom and dad were divorced. Mom drank a lot. She overdosed on pills, but didn't die. One cold night, I lay in the back seat of mom's maroon Ford and tried to sleep on the half-hour drive home from her boyfriend's house. The radio played Hank Williams Jr., and the window was open a few inches. Pure night air swirled in around me, making me shiver. I wanted a blanket. I was so cold. Mom flicked her cigarette out the window. Some ashes flew back at me. But I remained still and watched the orange embers on the seat burn down until they all blew away. One summer day when I was 12, a group of kids from the daycare center that my dad owned and operated went on a field trip to watch local circus performers practice. When we returned near lunchtime, I was high on my new life goal of joining the circus. I bounced in the side door of the cement block building without giving much thought to the police car parked out front. The school's cook ushered me into the kitchen for a chat. This was unusual, but I sat on a stool obediently and watched her smear peanut butter on Wonder Bread as she tried to engage me in small talk. A few minutes later, my dad summoned me. I stood awkwardly next to him in the hallway by his office with a cop, a preacher, and some other adults, and he told me my mom fell asleep in the garage and was dead. Suicide. She'd been found by her boyfriend on the cold floor of the garage with a pack of cigarettes next to her as though she sat down and relaxed with a few smokes until she fell asleep. In the fall, the year I was 20, when the cool weather crept in and the days grew shorter, I met a cute guy on the dance floor of a bar that had accepted my fake ID. His responsive eyes and smile framed in wrinkles revealed that he was several years my senior, which appealed to me as I balanced on the tightrope between my stunted childhood and my adult lifestyle. After our dance, I went into the bathroom. Blinding fluorescent lights shocked my system after the comfortable darkness of the bar. I locked the door of a stall, opened my purse, and pulled out a small bag and a razor blade. The toilet tank provided a smooth work surface for chopping white powder into a two-inch line. I rolled tightly a dollar bill to make a straw through which to snort the coke. After rubbing every speck of white residue onto my gums for added numbness, I made my gleeful way back to my new friend, Richard. Before too long, I had the keys to his rich person, clean white Thunderbird that smelled of cinnamon air freshener. It was strong and overbearing, just like him. I pretended to be an adult. I wandered into the dangerous territory of a relationship that was bound for failure. We had little in common. He was a 36-year-old business owner and a divorced father. One of his friends, though, had recently committed suicide, so we bonded over talk of death. I drove in the dark to his bachelor pad house one damp spring night. Frogs littered the back roads, some hopping, some already dead, smashed by cars. Stupid frogs. Couldn't they understand? Just because there was water didn't make it safe. Get off the road, I wanted to shout. It's dangerous. I knew the second it happened. We had never before gone so far or acted so recklessly. I figured the odds were in our favor that we would be untouched by our mistake. But on Mother's Day weekend, a couple weeks later, I bought a pregnancy test at the drugstore and confirmed what I knew already from my missed period. I was pregnant. I looked up in the yellow pages and found two listings under A. I called one and scheduled my abortion. My boss was a really good friend, but that did not mean I planned to tell him why I wanted a day off of work. But somehow he guessed and begged me not to go through with it. He said, J.J., you don't know how much I love you because you don't know what I would do for you. His words knocked me into the frayed chair facing his desk. I pondered his pleas, all the while knowing I was going to forge ahead with my plans. 
Why does he love me? Besides working at his business and attempting to reciprocate the friendship he offered, I had given him nothing. The day came when Richard drove me to an unmarked building in an office park a mile from my apartment. The hot cinnamon smell in the car made me want to vomit. I rolled down my window slightly to draw in a fresh breath, but was scolded like a child because the air conditioner was on. Close to the door, a heavy-set man on crutches was barely keeping his balance while holding up a sign that said, Abortion Kills. No kidding, I thought. Thanks for pointing that out. He also chanted those same words. Did he think screaming at women was going to change their minds? Probably some compassion would have been a more useful tactic. Go fuck yourself, Richard yelled at him. I tasted the salt from my tears and snot as I bawled. So much was pouring from my head that I could barely see the receptionist as she collected my information. Are you okay? She asked. My mind raced. Seriously? Of course I'm not okay. Do you not see me crying? I'm at an abortion clinic with a man too old for me who clearly has an anger problem, as you may have heard, when he cursed at the protester outside. I didn't say any of that. Instead, I said, oh, I'm fine. Afterwards, my ever-thoughtful man was happy he could still make, make it to a 1045 meeting. Yep, he dropped me off at home and sped away in his T-bird. I seethed with anger at him, and I loathed myself. I tried to sleep, but the apartment wasn't dark enough. So emptied of tears and unable to escape into sleep, I carted a paperback book and a container of cherry yogurt to the swimming pool and found an inviting chair to rest in and search for calm as I sat in the burning sun, the purifying heat. But then I gagged when I looked at a piece of mushy fruit atop my pink yogurt. I couldn't eat. I couldn't focus on the sappy romance novel, sure to have a happy ending. The glaring sun just made my head hurt anyway, so I walked back home and considered killing myself. Everything would go away. The pain of living would be someone else's to deal with. But my thoughts of suicide remained just thoughts. Days later, I was still bleeding, so I called the clinic and rattled off my problems, braided with anxiety, fear, and embarrassment. The woman who answered let me talk until I ran out of words. When I took a recovery breath, she nervously informed me that she wasn't a nurse or a doctor, but worked for their answering service. She said she'd leave a message for a doctor. I was so humiliated, but in disgrace, I offered my name and number and shoved my guilt and remorse to cavernous depths somewhere within. Like a dog hiding a bone, I buried my emotions to dig them up for a later feast. I wanted to get my life cleaned up, but I didn't know how. I had been using for a bookmark a scrap of paper on which I had scribbled a Bible verse a long time ago. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Songs of joy were nowhere, but the tears were beginning to pool at my feet. Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Communion happens twice a year at my church. One Sunday a few years ago, I stayed home with a headache on a communion Sunday while my husband and my three kids went to church. I don't like to miss communion, even if after 25 years of claiming Christianity as my way of life, I still find myself often begging God to be real. I'm more spiritual at home anyway. When I sit in crowded pews, my mind wanders. I ponder my upcoming week, my next meal. I make eye contact with the little girl resting her chin on her mom's shoulder. I try to guess how old the organist is and how long she's been playing these same hymns. Power in the blood, when I survey the wondrous cross. 
The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. I look around and wonder how everyone else gets it and I don't. I'm afraid my chewing and swallowing of the bread is loud enough to distract others or that I will spill the wine, which is really grape juice. I'm ashamed when my mind flits about like a pesky fly. I want to swat at my thoughts. Like flies at a picnic, no amount of shooing does the trick. The temptation to land on something sweet and easy is too strong. I crawled back into bed that morning and covered my face with a pillow to block the light. I prayed for relief from my headache pain. I slept. I would have to wait another six months for communion. I am so hungry for Jesus. I am in so need of him to come nourish me. The thing is, he knows I'm a wretch. He knows when my smiles are big fat lies. He knows when I doubt him and want more answers about him. He also knows I'm too lazy to search for the answers I say I want. Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. He's standing here right now at my side. As I record this to send to Steve for my first ever podcast appearance, Jesus is here. He's been here all along. Through my pain and bad decisions, he was by my side every time I cried. He was trying to tell me, J.J., you don't know how much I love you because you don't know what I did for you. He gets me because I'm his child. Jesus isn't handing me a little squishy piece of white bread for me to eat in front of others. He doesn't much care about the shot of grape juice and the plastic cup. He doesn't want me to settle for ritual and pretend it's enough. He's crying and bleeding, all for me. His arms are out. He can take away all my pain, the pain that's so much deeper than my headache. Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. Good Friday is a time of darkness, a time of tension and unknowing. The disciples had followed a man named Jesus for years, and now had seen him crucified and murdered. They were stuck between hopelessness and waiting, waiting to see if anything would happen, if all their faith had been for nothing. For us, much of our life exists in the tension and unknowing. Much of our life exists in the waiting. Waiting to hear back from a doctor. Waiting to see if the latest medication works waiting to see if someone will come back or change for the better, waiting to see if we can change for the better. In these times of tension, of unknowing, of waiting, it often feels like all is lost. Much like the disciples, we can feel like our faith was worthless, that we've been wasting our time, that we're stuck in an upper room with the whole world against us. It's in this place that we find examples in Job, in David's laments, in Jesus himself in the garden. We cry out to God, take this from me, fix this for me, do something, do anything. But I find hope in the fact that there are so many lamenting, so many crying out to God, so many wishing, hoping, praying for something better. At the end of Job's story, we see God give no answers, but we do see him give a response. 
I am here. I am with you. We see God commend Job for speaking truthfully while his friends get reprimanded for trying to make up logical reasonings, for trying to explain away Job's pain. In David, we see entire chapters of laments, of pleading with God for something better, of crying out in pain. And again, we see him commended by God for this, referred to as a man after God's own heart. We see that in our times of pain and unknowing and waiting, in times of tension and darkness and suffering, we see a God that doesn't want us to put on a happy face and demand that all things are fine. We see a God that meets us in our pain, meets us in our suffering, meets us in the tension. We see a Savior who is willing to step into that pain and suffer with us, a God whose character is simply love. This Good Friday, we can recognize the hope and victory that comes with Easter without rushing past the pain, without glossing over the suffering and the tension. We cry out with Job, with David, with Jesus himself. We echo the man in Mark who appeals directly to Jesus. I do believe, he cries in desperation. Help my unbelief. Father, we ask you to help our unbelief, to help us to lean into you with our questions, lean into you with our tension, lean into you with our pain. Show us, as you always have, that you meet us there.
I know a man named Jesus He loved until he died And after doing nothing wrong Took the bullet for his bride If what I've heard is really true And love should come for free That I can love this Jesus too Because he first loved me 